Hello everyone, my name is Jared Altick and I'm a chaplain with the police department. The Hey Chaplain podcast is the place where members of the law enforcement community can share their wisdom and experience through me, the chaplain, to encourage others who wear the badge. In this second half of the Kansas City Mafia interview, you don't want to miss Gary Jenkins zeroing in on the Kansas City Mafia family, the Savella family. He explains the rise and fall of the Savellas and how both the Mafia and law enforcement evolved in the decades after World War II. We'll talk about unions, casinos, and wiretaps, and Gary will tell us a little bit about his own career. You especially don't want to miss Gary's advice about what to do after you retire from law enforcement. Today we pick up with where Gary and I were talking about the history of gambling as a major revenue stream for organized crime here in Kansas City, when he then focused in on the Kansas City Mafia crime family, the Savella family. Here is Gary Jenkins. Now gambling, when football got going, professional football got going, then gambling became the source of income for really? our family. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's just so much money that's gambled on professional football by the 70s. Okay. That's what Nick Savella, who became the boss, so we ought to talk about him. Yeah, I was going to ask, when did the Savellos become synonymous with the Kansas City Mafia? <laughs> I mean, where did, they, where did they enter the picture? Was that during Prohibition, or was that later? Yeah, well, Nick and, and Cork, his brother Cork Savella, were young guys— during Prohibition, Nick was always kind of he he was the brains of the two. Okay, Nick was a or Carl Cork was a brawn and, and had a, a, a temper like you can't believe it. That's why they called him Cork because he blow his cork all the cork, time. Right? <laughs> so they say it's not Corky, it's Cork. Okay, <laughs> but Nick was the brains. Okay. But Nick was always kind of a rebel. He was robbing, protecting gambling games in the city during mm. the 30s and in the 40s and the end of the war. He stole, he had a little gang that stole tires. Tires was a big one to steal back in the day. And and so he was, he got on the outs with, uh, I think it was Jim Ballastari was the guy's name. He gets on the outs. He has to go off to Chicago. Uh, they kill one of his partners and his gang and, Try to kill him. Matter of fact, he's sitting in a car, in his car, at a liquor store over here on Truman Road, about Truman and uh, uh, west of Troost a little bit. And, and who's trying to kill him? This Jim Ballesteri. Oh, okay. He oh. had been robbing these protected games. Okay. You, know, you got a game out here, and, and it's one of your, one of your, you're connected to the mob, then you, nobody better go rob it. Right. And so Nick had this little gang, and he was going around robbing these protected games. And so they found out who it was. Yeah, it's like playing with fire. And he's sitting in this car, and a deputy sheriff gets in the car with Jackson County deputy. Now, remember, the county police is always a little bit, and actually our city police all the way up to uh, after the war up into the 50s, we had, it was a little bit shaky. We had people that were out of the old school, out of the old days. Yeah. And so this uh, deputy sheriff gets in the car with him, and Nick just slides over, and the guy's sitting behind the wheel, and they're talking. And a car comes flying in, and, and they get out, two guys get out, one with a real deal machine gun. And the other with the shotgun, it just started blasting that car, and they killed the deputy. Oh, my. Nick rolls out because he's on the other side away from the car because they think right. you know, the driver they is Nick. He's driving. Right. right. He rolls out and runs off and gets away. He goes to Chicago, and they say that's why he's – we've always been really – he had really good relationships with Chicago all of his life because he, he gets protected in Chicago, mm. and he stays in Chicago 
for several years, and then he comes back. They broker some kind of a deal, and he comes back. He must have done something up there. Uh, we don't know what, but he was valuable up there to somebody because they broker a deal, and they bring him back. He's able to come back, and we have a new boss, and a guy named Tony Gizzo. Johnny Lazio got killed in 1934, and there was a couple other kind of bosses in between during the 30s, and this guy named Tony Gizzo is the boss, and they bring Nick back, and he becomes Tony Gizzo's driver, which is a pretty important place to okay. be. You're, you're, okay. you're right next to the boss all the time. Right. That's a, that's a pre- primo spot to be as the boss's driver. Huh. So Nick comes back, and he's the boss's driver, and that's the start of his career. Okay. Uh, after he comes back from Chicago, he had this interrupted Bob career or career as a criminal in Kansas City. Goes to Chicago. We don't know much about what happened. He did get in a, a shooting. He he, tried, he he was part of a little crew that tried to rob a dance. You know, they'd have a dance and take in a lot of cash, so he tried to rob the box office of a dance. Got in a shootout. He shot a Chicago policeman. You know, what's funny is uh, they didn't do anything up there. You know, you think Kansas City's bad, <laughs> corruption-wise. <laughs> they don't hold a can- we don't hold a candle in Chicago. <laughs> Nick Savella Nick. comes back to Kansas City approximately when? I'd say 49, 50. Okay. Okay. After so late the 40s. War. Yeah, okay. late 40s yeah. after yeah. the war. Well, let's talk about, you know, post-war years. So Nick Savella is the boss in Kansas City. Right. Is that accurate? Right. Okay. And gambling is a big deal. Gambling is a thing. In Kansas City. Uh, certainly lots of other illicit activities. How does that evolve then through the 50s, 60s, 70s? And where do you come into the picture as, a, as an officer? In 1957, there's the famous uh, mob convention in Appalachian, New York. So they have this, this big meeting of all the heads of the families in all the United States. Mm-hmm. And guess who is at the train station on their way to Appalachian? At that same time, and then it's picked up by the upstate New York police, Nick Savella and Joe Flardo, who ran Roma Beckery. If remember, if you guys right. go out there and buy any Roma bread, just remember that's, <laughs> that comes from Joe Flardo. That's, that's mafia bread. <laughs> that's <right>? mafia bread. <laughs> I don't know who owns it now, but uh, we don't want to get any trouble no, here. No, I don't think, I don't think the mafia owns it now. Conglomerate of businesses yeah. or whatever, sure, yeah. But uh, he is there to introduce Nick to the national bosses okay. as this is this is the man in Kansas City. He mm-hmm. is the guy. And Nick Savala is canny. He's good. He's he's he reads a lot. He uh, th- is thoughtful. He he uh, he never was a guy to go out in the clubs and party around mm-hmm. and quiet. But he's all business. He's all business. I'll tell you that. And. And so, you know, he's consolidating the gambling's going on and, and the other different vices, uh, you know, the things that fell off the truck. But but Nick, see, he understands that this out-and-out crime, you know, kind of losing the political element, or the politics has changed by yeah. the, during the 60s especially. That huge upheaval in the 60s mm-hmm. in politics. And so the old-school politicians are... are Going out and and new brooms come in and sweep clean and the mob the newspapers are paying more attention to that connection between organized crime and politicians and a lot a lot more heat on that and that's kind of going out. Nick Savella sees in Kansas City there's an option with union activity. Union activity is almost as good as having really owning a bunch of politicians hmm. and it's really interesting how he meets the guy. 
who goes to be the ends up being the head of the all the teamsters unions in in Kansas City, all the different locals, who then is really the last international president for a real short period of time before the government really came down on the teamsters in the seventies. Mm-hmm. He meets. Roy Lee Williams, it was the man's name. He meets him, Nick Savella, and Roy Lee Williams are sitting on a local Jackson County Democratic Party committee, and it's the committee that chooses who is going to run, who the who the party in in Jackson County is going to support. Yeah, because you got to you know, there's like few hoops you, you can throw your hat in the ring but if you want to get elected you better have you've got to have their endorsement you got to have yeah. their endorsement he's sitting on this committee and they get to know each other and they start saying they have some mutual interest and and hoffa's already started this on a national level kind mm-hmm. of this unholy connects with the mafia because the can, mafia can go in and and they'll they're they're happy to use intimidation tactics tactics for the unions they're happy to go in and do vandalism uh whenever they've got somebody tries to hire a bunch of scabs and and don't worry about a strike why they get hold of their mafia buddies and they'll go in and do a bunch of vandalism they don't mind they've got people that'll do it they've got people who don't mind going to jail hoffa thinks he can control this beast <laughs> of the mafia and found out in the end he couldn't but and so on a local basis and can't see roy lee williams becomes Savella's buddy and, and Savella's owns owns him uh, in a short period of time. We don't know exactly how, but he probably, uh, as as this one mob guy read his book that he wrote, and he, he had some money coming from him for settling a strike. Huh. Okay, a mob guy can go in and settle a strike. They. They'll go in if you've got some people. Maybe you got some rank and file that don't want to go ahead and settle. Mob guys will. You know, go out there they'll and lean send, on them. They'll go yeah. out and lean on them. Or if you've got a company that's being hard case, yeah. they'll go lean on the company. You know, yeah. they can settle a strike. Yeah. That's what the original mafia was about was settling disputes over in Sicily between people. So uh, somehow Roy Lee Williams kind of he formed an unholy alliance with Nick Savelle. Right. Okay. And he found out that he got a tiger by the tail. He tells a story. He see he ends up going turning state's witness or federal witness and testifies just before he dies, late in his life. He's okay. looking at a 50-year sentence for uh, trying to help bribe a, a Nevada senator. He's part of a conspiracy with some Chicago people to bribe Howard, Howard Cannon. He was a Nevada senator about some gambling things out in Las Vegas because the Teamsters end up totally wrapped up in that Las Vegas thing. Sure. He tells this story after he starts talking to the government, Bill Owsley, a local FBI agent that's my friend and was a case agent on the uh, skimming, uh, Las Vegas skimming trial, told me this story. He, he said that uh, Nick Savella came up with an idea. I think it was to sell, it was to sell, get Teamsters to all buy into some kind of a uh, health program or a, a, maybe a dental program, I think. And and then when Williams looked at it, he said, and and Nick Savella was going to get like a buck out of each one of these guys that signed up. Nick Savella was going to get a buck for really for doing nothing, right? Just telling him, you know, this is, you know, I've got these dentists lined up and talked to this guy. He'll deal with you, and and you'll have this dental program. But he was going to get a buck out of it. And Williams told him, he said, well, you know, I can't do that. I can't, you know, that's that's not good for my my employees here. Somebody stops by his house one day and picks him up and says, come on with us, takes him for a ride out to 
you know, like a, a house or a, uh, an apartment or something, sets him down, puts a lamp right in his eyes, and Nick Savella comes out of the dark and then starts telling him, you know, uh, if it was up to me, you wouldn't leave this room alive. You know, we can, we, I think we can work this out, but, you know, you got to understand, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. reads him the, the riot act. And what's interesting about that, Jared, is 25 or 30 years later, we got another guy from out in Las Vegas who he does exactly, who tells exactly the same story, and he can't know this other story. Right. <laughs> so, so is that just a Savella move? It was a Savella move there. You know, I, you I think you saw that one of those old right. B movies where the detectives <laughs> get them in and shine a light in their eyes and give them the third degree, as yeah, we used to yeah, say. Yeah, he's got a stick. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. And so the mafia in Kansas City have all kinds of connections then to uh, casinos out in Las Vegas. Right. Um, when did you start your law enforcement career? 1971. 1971. Okay. And then when did you become a detective or start, you know, w- when did the mafia get onto your radar personally? <laughs> oh, I, th- I think I was always kind of interested in it. I remember <laughs> reading the, the Peter Moss book about Joe Valachi, and, and there was another famous mob informant from New Jersey that they wrote a book. I always was interested sure. in that. Sure. And came on the police department, do my time in patrol, as we all do. Some people don't mind staying patrol. I wanted to be a detective, of course. And, yeah. And... We had some station detectives, and I pretty quickly, within a couple of years, I got became a station detective and worked burglaries and larcenies. And, but I found out about this thing called the intelligence unit, and I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting, and they worked the mafia. Hmm. I stumbled across a little information and fed them that, and it was pretty good. It was, it was more about a black organized crime thing, and found out a little more and Fed them that, fed, you know. Kind of proving your worth. Proving, you know, yeah. making, or earning my bones, <laughs> making my bones, as they say. I didn't have to kill anybody, but I had to show them that I could do something. Right, right. Found out some more information, even got, you know, got assigned to a little special squad down there on this kind of a black organized group of bank robbers and and uh, who was led by a local guy who had a lot of political connections. And we never, nothing really ever came of it, uh, but... You know, I really got to know them pretty well then. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, why they have an opening and they remembered me and <laughs> they knew my hat was always in the ring because yeah. I'd kept yeah. up my connections with the sergeants down there. And, yeah. And so I get down there and I, I go to work on the mafia. <laughs> How many years did you do that? So I spent about 14 years altogether, I think, 13, 14 years in the intelligence unit. Excellent. And during that time, we're up in the 70s and 80s and beyond. What's happening with the Savella family, the Kansas City Mafia? They're. They've been caught now a couple times with uh, with Las Vegas connections right. and and you know that kind of thing. So tell me how how are they beginning their decline? Yeah, well, it was uh, <laughs> both my movies, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, the Savella Spiro War. Will tell you about the rise and the fall of of the uh, mafia in Kansas City, and I was part of it. I yeah. I came in in '76 and. Sometime during 76, we had a, a, a mob war going on. Mm-hmm. And informants were telling the Bureau that these guys would sit over at the Villa Capri, which is a little um, pizza nightclub neighborhood bar over at Independence and Prospect. And 
said they would always sit at the same table and they'd have what we would call dirty talk. They, they, they had an informant who said, yeah, they told me about doing this or right. wanted me to go put a bomb on this guy's car. And, and you know, we talk about maybe fencing some property and, and different kind of illegal discussion of illegal activities. Mm-hmm. And, and we also, and, you know, in the intelligence unit, we do things like drive by those places and write down license numbers. We go into them once in a while and just go in there and eat or just sit at the bar and drink for a little bit and see who was in there. And, right. and, and we had done that, and we wrote right reports when that happens. And so, you know, we'd been in and out of that place, written reports, and, and they've got informants saying, yeah, they always sit at the same place, and we'd seen them sit at that same place, and, and they have this kind of talk, and they put a, a hidden microphone there. Uh-huh. And so they, but they don't pick up talk about going killing these one of these uh, Spiro brothers. There's four brothers that uh, were in this war with the Savella brothers and the rest of the Savella family. They were these were like upstarts, young Turks that wanted a bigger piece of the action. And, right. And they'd killed the older brother off a couple three years before that, and. Uh, and the, and the youngest brother was a real mover and a shaker and a, a professional criminal, and he'd gotten out of the penitentiary by then, and he'd started making some moves, and he had told people that he was going to make moves on this uh, Sabella family. And so they don't hear him talking about anything about the Spiros or any murders. They hear him talking about Las Vegas and mention $25 million. Are we in on that with them? And what lefty? Oh, you remember you were out at the Stardust, and— and Jay Brown said this, and, and this guy called the genius said that, and you know they start when they start running that down, they find out they're talking about the Stardust in Las Vegas, and they're talking about Lefty Rosenthal, who was a Robert De Niro character. They're talking Jay Brown was a lawyer, um, and uh, who was a uh, corporate counsel, I think, for and partner of uh, uh, Oscar Goodman, who was a big mob lawyer in Las Vegas. And, you know, long story short, they threw up a whole bunch of, of wiretaps because we followed the underboss, Tuffy DeLuna, around and caught him on some payphones over in the Breckenridge Ridge Inn at uh, I-435 in front. And threw a wire on those payphones, and there's a guy in Las Vegas really laying it out. They talk about going to uh, the place called the Squares, so if, and it's in the afternoon. So we catch them down at a law office, uh, and Quinn, who had been Savella's lawyer on several different things, so he just let Nick Savella come in every afternoon and use his office if he wasn't going to be there. Hmm. So then you follow them down there, and then they throw a microphone in there and a wiretap on that phone. They think they're really cool in that lawyer's office, and they're really some good talk out of that one. <laughs> so you put that together, and you come up with, all these, these influences in Las Vegas and mm-hmm. that they're getting skim money coming back from Las Vegas and they're joined up with Milwaukee and Cleveland, and, Chicago and mobs. Skim money, skim money is when the casino brings in the money before it's counted, before they're it's stealing counted. some. So, so when they report to the state to pay their taxes, right, right. That the mob's already taken their cut right. before it ever got counted. Right. right? Yes. Okay. okay. They had one deal when they'd weigh the coins, they rigged the scale. So it really? would misweigh the coins. But that was too much trouble because then you had to convert those coins into cash because you didn't want to walk out of the casino with, you know, 500 pounds of silver. Right, right, right. <laughs> so in the end, they just they had this another scheme of phony fill slips uh, whenever they because uh, the a table needed more money, they'd they'd fill out a phony fill slip and send it through to get take and take that money, drag that money in the end. At the Tropicana, Nick Savella's man out there, Joe Gosto and Carl Thomas, 
pretty much ran that casino. Okay. They had owners, but these two guys ran the casino, and they hired the right people to go in the count room. And so when they brought all the cash into the count room, then they just drag off so much and then count right. the rest of it. And these Las Vegas casinos are sending money then back to Kansas right, City to Kansas and City. Chicago right. and Milwaukee right. and Cleveland and all the yeah. other places. There's two yeah. sets of – it really gets complicated. <laughs> two sets of skim coming, one from Tropicana just for Nick Savella. Because yeah. he developed that all on his own. Okay. The uh, Stardust, which is the one in the casino movie, Lefty mm-hmm. Rosenthal or Ace Rothstein. Right. That was the bigger stream of, of money. It was like 100000 We had about forty grand a month coming from the trop. They had about 100 or more every month coming from the, from the uh, Stardust because owned, they owned three other littler casinos. Right. And that money was all coming in the Stardust. And that was being divided up between Chicago, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Kansas City. Okay. Because they all conspired together and and allowed the owner of that corporation to get a big $62 million Teamsters loan. All right. So then he allowed them to insert people into the count room that were – you know, yeah. mob people. Man, it just blows and they can me away. Skim the money off and they, send it they, back. They built a casino with pension money from the Teamsters, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Basically. they got a sixty some million dollars from yeah. from the pension. That's man. That's insane that that even. Yeah. Yeah. All the connections. It is complicated. Yeah. It, it, it is. It's, it's interesting. It took took a long time to get that all unraveled. But I think my impression had always been that American Mafia declined to the degree that they did in part because of informants that 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 the sentences were so steep that people would rat everybody out and they no longer kept <laughs> that code of silence but i learned from you quite a bit about the wires the wiretapping and and putting a microphone at, in a restaurant at the booth they always sit at mm-hmm. and the payphone that they always use that was actually a pretty big part of it too that that here's the 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 powerful weapon that basically destroyed the mob in the United States or reduced it to what it is today. Right. And that's the RICO law, racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations used in connection with wiretaps. Because with the RICO law, you don't just go after the one guy that's doing the talking. You go after the organization. You go up the food chain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You go up up the food chain, that's a good way to put it, and take everybody down and uh, you have these, you know, they had more uh, draconian sentencing also that came mm-hmm. along at the same time after they developed, uh, got a, a statute, 19, uh, or Omnibus Crime Control Act of 1968, established the the wiretap. And sometime during those next few years, they established a, this RICO law. And, and so you got, uh, you know, just charge people with racketeering. Yeah. Just getting together and talking about it. You know, yeah. they don't like that. But, you know, and the wiretaps are a big part of that. And out of that, you get a storyteller that says, yeah, you know, I was, I did this, this, and this for these guys. And, you know, show me a picture. And they show them a picture of these guys together. And they say, oh, yeah, that guy's, you know, Joy Opa, he's the boss. And that guy next to him, that's Joy Lombardo. He's a capo. And that guy there, that's Vince Lano. He's a capo, too. And he has a crew. He has a Chinatown crew. And, and they do a lot of union uh, uh, racketeering, you know. Right. So you get all that. It's a really complicated case. Yeah. But when they put it all together, which they started doing. And each time one of those big cases comes through, it 
decapitates the the leadership of the family. Right. It, it sends people to prison and sometimes for the rest of their lives, and it reduces those mafia families. But they still exist. Yeah. So, so what in what capacity do you see organized crime in Kansas City here in the last like twenty, thirty, forty years? Oh. Just I'd say you know after uh, the '80s, that's when they all went to the penitentiary. '83, '84 <laughs> yeah. were, were the trials, and, and since then, at the same time, the uh, mafia not only in Kansas City but in every other city lost any control over their Teamsters Union because hmm. the U.S. Department of Labor, after all the information that came out about these casino loans and these mob guys that were were really influencing the Teamsters to to then approve these loans, the pension fund to approve these loans, uh, they they put it into a re- what they called a receivership and appointed a trustee in every major city to oversee new elections. Mm. And then they uh, and they they the U.S. Department of Labor really monitored those elections and watched for any mob influence in those right. elections. So they got all new people. And so the mob basically lost the Teamsters Union. Yeah. And you know how big the Teamsters Union is? It's huge. And see, yeah. the Teamster, the Teamsters is a huge political weapon because uh, uh, at that point in time, labor unions still had a lot of influence over politicians more yeah. than they do today because you only if you had Hoffa or you had Roy Lee Williams you just go to him and say you know we like this guy we don't like that guy right give yeah. money to this guy yeah, give money to that guy and so it's clean and post election right have all kinds of influence right, right. And, yeah. and it's clean money you know yeah. it's teamster yeah. money it's not the mob money it's right. teamster money so so when they lost the teamsters they lost a lot of political power and they lost all this steady stream of money coming from las vegas and their the bosses went to jail for a long time the same time then they do the commission case in new york and, and they they take out out all the bosses of the five families in New York City. Yeah. About the same time, they had these major mob investigations, RICO investigations, all over the around the United States. And so that just you know they're still there. You're, you're always going to have that. It's kind of a, a culture in a way. It's it's in the culture. But the Sevilla family in Kansas City, they yeah, get shipped away at yeah, decade after decade. Yeah, yeah. Their their kids and grandkids are not you know. Not at the same level. They, no. they never tried. You know, and they, they didn't seem like they ever tried, and several of them didn't have. A, they didn't have in, in them to try, and and even the one I think maybe had it in him to try. By then, it's just you know, it's too hard I mean, with yeah. wiretaps and and you know, there's just law enforcement's got so much more sophisticated, and the lo- uh, laws are more sophisticated, and they look at things like that and. Yeah. And they come down on you. Then it all got it sw- uh, switched to the new organized crime, which is narcotics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that wasn't yeah. the the old line. La Cosa Nostra Mafia never really individuals did, but they they as an organization they never really got into narcotics. Right, right. Not like the cartels from right. South and Central right. America. I mean, yeah. So let's shift gears. Did you have a plan for what you would do after you left law enforcement? I mean, did you know, okay, yes, I'm definitely going to go into this field or yeah, that no, field? No, I didn't. I didn't really have a plan beyond <laughs> being a cop until way late in my career. Some people do, I think. Maybe some people start businesses and sure. always want to do something else. I never want to do anything else uh, right now, right back then, for sure. 
was having yeah. too much fun. I left the intelligence unit, and it wasn't so much fun. I ended up back in patrol late in my career, working dog watch. Mm. So I'm talking to uh, Daryl Chisholm, who was another sergeant. He's, he's talking about a guy who became the chief of police, Daryl Forte. He said, you know, he said Forte took the uh, law school test. He said, he did okay on it. I said, oh, we what? He said, yeah. He said, he took the entrance exam. There's an exam called the LSAT that you have to take. Yeah, yeah. He said, uh, yeah, he took the LSAT, and, and he did. You know, he had a score. He scored it, and you can you can get practice ones. And he said he did pretty good on it. He's, he's thinking about going to law school. So I, I'll never forget, Jared, that night it was like I was struck. <laughs> I was blinded by the light. I had this physical, like, shudder went down through me i thought i could do that hell if forte can do that i can do that <laughs> so the next week or two i ran out to law school and asked them they said yeah here's a is there an entrance uh, application yeah. and yeah. and here's a practice lsat so i took it home and looked at it and i thought man this is hard but i took it and scored it and i did i think the the medium for anybody who gets accepted, the medium GPA is like a 3.5, and the, the LSAT was like a 155, and I scored a 150 on it. I thought, well, <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty close. I, yeah. I'm trying to finish off my undergrad now. I did, it took me 30 years to get my undergrad degree, by the way. <laughs> Overnight success after 30 years. Huh? But uh, so, you know, I was working on that, and I knew I was easily going to get a 3.5 because by this point in time, I was just, I was getting, you know, 3.5 and 4.0 in every sure, class I sure, took. Sure. Because I wasn't out drinking and partying every night anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I just kept kind of thinking about it. And over the next couple of years, I went on days and did some kind of community policing stuff, which was boring. Uh-huh. And, and uh, you know, the whole, intelligence the whole wanting to chase the bad guys around and uh go after the big ones and all that was i guess i matured beyond that or something (laughs) and i just started working on going to law school and thought well i'll just go to law school see how that goes so i went to law school as soon as i could retire at 25 and went to law school three years and and went straight through and then practice law for the next 20 years is uh, kind of, just working kind of for myself, just general, whatever I get my hands on. It wasn't too, uh, as, as Professor Ochtenberg once told me, said, Mr. Jenkins, he said, now when you get out of school, he said, nobody's going to come to you for any complex litigation. He said, but people are going to come to you and they want divorces and traffic tickets and uh, all kinds of different <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, you know, you're right. It yeah. kind of hurts my feelings, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So how did the how did you come back to basically, I mean, you've become kind of a mafia historian. Yeah. How, how did you come back to that? Oh, I started doing these documentary films just as a kind of a creative outlet. Right. And right. and then uh, you know, I I'd spent I had a lot of friends. We still got together periodically. Uh, about once every quarter we all meet for uh, lunch. A- and um I don't know, I just always wanted to tell some of those stories. Sure. Especially sure. the uh, the story, especially after the movie Casino came out, and then Nicholas Pelleggi in his book Casino, he put. I, I was walking through the plaza one day. I used to live down by there, and I was walking down the plaza, and, and some young policeman happened to see me, and he hollered. He said, "Hey, Sarge," he said. Uh, 
uh, I just read your name in a book. I said, what do you mean my name in a book? Yeah, he said, uh, uh, it's called Casino. Uh, so, you know, they've got them over there, Barnes & Noble. So I went to Barnes & Noble and looked in the in the back, and there's yeah. my name. So I yeah. flipped over, and I was, uh, whenever we served search warrants on all the mob bosses in Kansas City after the skim investigation. Right. They sent one of the intelligence guys with each crew of FBI agents that was going to search the houses, and then had us wear uniforms. So we're see, we're still in the middle. There's still a mob war going on, right? And so you don't want people to get mistaken about what's going on, especially on it that night. And so it sent us. We just put on uniforms, checked out a Mark Carr, and then went up and banged mm-hmm. on the door and said, you know. Yeah. We got a search warrant, and then you know, just kind of step aside. Then and sat around with them all night, just in case somebody came up and handled any kind of problems like that. And, right. And, and so um, uh, that night, uh, I was in Tuffy DeLuna's house. Carl Tuffy DeLuna was the underboss, and I was in his house. And and uh, ten years later, a local newspaper reporter named Bill Norton wrote, uh, ten years since we served these search warrants on St. Valentine's Day." Okay, so it was like the St. Valentine's Day, Day massacre. massacre. Right. They served in Chicago, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Las Vegas that same Valentine's Day. So it was like a, a Valentine for Tuffy or something like that. So he right. interviewed me and Bill Owsley and a, another detective that came over there later, Harold Nichols, uh, about what was that night like. And, you know, I gave him some quotes for his article. So Pledgy, when he writes his book in that section or that page or two about serving the search warrant on Tuffy DeLuna's house, he just basically took the quotes. He wrote it, rewrote it in his own words, but took the quotes directly from Norton's article and put them in there. And that's why he (laughs) he had me in there. That's how you got name dropped. (laughs) Really. As a matter of fact, I tried to get him to be in my documentary, Gangland Wire. And the guy, I tell you what, dealing with these big time guys is hard because they don't have to do anything. And then the first time, we're all set to go, and and he backs out. He said, I got to go to Hollywood. Okay. Got to go out to uh, California. Okay. Last minute. A few months later, I, I make another run on him. He said, yeah, I'm good. So get it all set up. Well, this time, I by then, I've contracted with a, a cameraman who's going to film all my interviews. Okay. And I wanted a little higher quality than I can do, lighting-wise and, and uh, sound-wise. and So I buy him a ticket to go, and last minute, got to go out to Hollywood and can't make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. just emailed him back. I said, well, I appreciate, you know, and, and maybe someday. I said, but I'm not going to bother you again. <laughs> I did. I did make a, a run on him again to be on the podcast. Just do a phone interview on the podcast. And he wouldn't do that. <laughs> really, really. So, do you have any advice? Let's talk. Let's maybe think of of officers who are thinking about their second chapter. Mm-hmm. They're thinking, okay, I'm not going to do this forever. So, so what am I going to do next? Do you have any words of wisdom for for what to pursue and how to keep yourself busy and productive? Oh, you know, everybody's different, and. Uh, it was, even after I, I went to law school, at, at first I was trying to practice on my own, and you know it wasn't really. I, I, luckily, I had a couple of friends who'd been lawyers for a while, and they gave me some kind of cast off cases, and mm-hmm. so I kind of getting a little bit of something going, and and I, I thought, well, listen, just find some kind of a job, you know, I'm going to be kind of desirable with this legal law degree, and yeah. 
you know, one Professor Ochtenberg said, what do you want to be a chief of police somewhere? And you'll be a, you know, small town chief of police. And I don't know. I, I was tired of working for the government, though. I, I had a chance to be a legal uh, a clerk, a law clerk for a judge down there. But I told Judge uh, uh, Atwell, I said, you know, I appreciate it, but I, I, I don't want to work for the government anymore. Yeah. You know, I want to try to do something just on my own, see what I can do Yeah, all totally on my own. I mean, I just had that desire. So, you know, if you got your pension coming in and you have that desire, I mean, it's it's a lot more work. I tell you what, I worked yeah. a whole lot harder in retirement than I ever did on the police department for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> Believe yeah. me, yeah. being a policeman is pretty easy compared to going out there and scuffling on Having your own. Sink or swim on your own. Sink yeah. or swim on yeah. your own and, yeah. and, and, you know, f- you know, don't have any hours when you get off you still got it in your head so there's drawbacks to that but yet there's a lot of freedom and a lot of uh, sense of accomplishment to doing something totally on your own so but if you that's the time that you can do that yeah when you got that pension coming in you know that's the time to strike out on your own if you ever had any desire to do that give it a shot just don't invest all your you know all your savings into it <laughs> yeah. be my advice on that one but you didn't ask me for that yeah, yeah. but you know but if there's something else you know just get when you retire if you retire with the pension it's got all this freedom yeah so just you know do something with that freedom gary thank you so much i all really right, appreciate Jared. it all right it's great to be here I want to thank Gary again. The vast amount of information at his fingertips is so impressive, and he was a real pleasure to talk to. If you're interested in the history of organized crime, including drug cartels and biker gangs, make sure that you tune in to the Gangland Wire podcast and go to Gary's website and watch his documentary movies. The link to his site will be in the show notes. And if you like episodes where I talk about crime and law enforcement history, can I recommend that you go back and listen to episode 13, Wheel Gun to Glock. That one was especially good. Talking about the move from revolvers to semi-auto handguns, I guarantee you'll really like it. On the next episode of Hey Chaplin, we talk to a special guest, Mike the Cop. What kind of content would you want to produce? Would it be the skits or would it be writing or what, what would you want to do? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. <laughs> so it makes me, makes me think that's a really, it's really good. I'm used to, I'm used to getting a lot of very similar questions and that sure. one is something that no one has ever asked me. So, uh, that's a really good, it's probably mood, it's probably mood dependent, you know, okay, sure. uh, or, sure. or stylistically, if, if it's something that's really serious, uh, that has a lot of weight to it, I tend to want to write it. Um, and if it's something lighthearted, I would tend to want to make a sketch. If it has more gravity to it, I feel like I, at least I'm better at writing that stuff than I am making shorter, shorter videos about it. The views expressed here are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the views of any law enforcement agency or its components. If you like what you heard here, please share this episode with a cop or someone who loves a cop. Thank you for listening today, and as always, pray for peace in our city.